What did Ezekiel see when the heavens opened and he was given a glimpse of God's throne? What is the purpose of the four-faced guardian angels around God's throne? And are they actually angels at all? You'll find out today on the Cross References Podcast. Welcome to the Cross References Podcast, where you learn how every small piece of the Bible tells one big story, and most importantly, how they all connect to the cross and Christ. Whether you're a newbie Christian or a veteran Bible reader, our goal is that God's Word will make more sense to you after every episode. This is the last study that I'm writing before I even record my first episode, and the reason I had to do this study before I ever recorded my first episode was that honestly, I wasn't even going to do this podcast at all if I couldn't wrap my mind around the rest of Ezekiel chapter 1. This is one of the most difficult to understand and most fascinating chapters of the Bible. And if I couldn't do it justice, I was going to have second thoughts about whether I was qualified to even do this whole podcast whatsoever. So in case you're wondering, this is the chapter where Ezekiel has a vision of four supernatural beings and then sees God himself. This is Ezekiel's vision of the glory of God. This is an astounding and unique chapter of the Bible. And honestly, I was intimidated by it before I even began this podcast. And so because of that, I did push it off for a little while. My confidence that I would understand this chapter was very low. And I was afraid I would be too overwhelmed to even continue. And I just mentioned all that to say this. Once I actually jumped into it and slowly picked it apart verse by verse... I truly felt like the Holy Spirit helped me to get a handle on this text. And so, actually, instead of this chapter scaring me out of doing a Bible study podcast, it got me so excited to continue this podcast. Because if this is what I get to do on these episodes, I am along for the ride. I got to saturate myself in a chapter of the Word of God for weeks, learning the nuances of it, and now I get to share what I gathered with you. So. Flip in your Bible to Ezekiel 1 and buckle up, because I'm going to take you on this journey with me. So, today we're going to look at verses 4 through 28 of Ezekiel 1. And this is probably more verses than I will typically look at in one lesson. I mean, last time we only looked at three, but I wanted to get all of this section of Ezekiel at once because it hangs together so well. I mean, just one thing happens right after another. So I consider this section to be in three parts. And section one is the largest. This is about the four cherubim and their wheels. This is verses four through 21. And then section two is about the expanse above them. And that'll take up verses 22 through 25. Then section three is when Ezekiel sees God himself. Although Ezekiel continues his conversation with God in chapters 2 and 3, Ezekiel spends the least amount of his time describing what God looks like compared to anything else in this chapter, which is interesting to me, but I think I have an answer for why. Section 3 is verses 26 through 28. This is Ezekiel's vision of God. And when I say vision, I don't want to imply for even a second that this all just happened in Ezekiel's head and that God just dropped these images into his mind. I believe that God pulled back the curtain of reality 
and Ezekiel got to actually see into the supernatural realm for a period of time. This is Ezekiel's calling to be a prophet. Let's get started with verse 4. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a cat's foot, and they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings on their four sides they had human hands, and the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward, without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on their right side, the four had the face of an ox on the left side, and the four had the face of an eagle. So that was verses 4 through 10. Um, to start, Ezekiel sees these four living creatures coming down. I'm going to hesitate to call them angels. The Bible doesn't call them angels. And you might be thinking, but aren't all of God's supernatural servants called angels? Actually, no. Some are called seraphim. Some are called living creatures. Some are called God's divine counsel. Some are called gods or Elohim. And some are called angels. And those are all different categories of supernatural beings. They're not synonyms. Now, I don't find this hard to visualize in my head. I think Ezekiel is doing a really good job of giving me a mental picture of what these things look like. He sees a stormy wind and cloud. So I imagine the initial thing he saw was something like a tornado. From the midst of the tornado, there was brightness. And throughout this chapter, he uses the visual of fiery metal. Perhaps you've seen superheated metal, perhaps metallic objects that are being forged or shaped in a fire. And, and if you think about that glowing metal image, this is the mental image that Ezekiel uses to describe several elements of his vision. He sees these four creatures, which, which he calls living creatures, and he describes them as having a humanoid body. When I say humanoid, what I mean by that is their form had two legs, two arms, and a head. So kind of similar to humans, but that, that's pretty much where the similarity to humans ends. It said their legs were like calves' legs, and they had wings. And as it said, they had a face on each side of their head. They had one head facing south, one west, one east, one north, and it said they never turned. They, they could see in all directions and go in any direction they wanted. Let me pick it up again at verse 11. Such were their faces, and their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another, while two covered their bodies. And each went straight forward. Wherever the spirit would go, they went, without turning as they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. And the living creatures started to and fro, like the appearance of a flash of lightning. So there's a few things that keep coming up as Ezekiel describes the movements of these creatures. One of those is the number four. And besides the four faces, they, they all move four directions. A second thing that keeps coming up is the word straight. Ezekiel emphasizes that they move straight in each direction and their legs are straight. And so I take that to mean that when they move, their legs stay still. And, and maybe, maybe you're thinking, well, 
How do they move if their legs are staying still? We'll discuss that in just a minute. But a third thing that Ezekiel keeps mentioning is the word spirit. How do these static figures continually move in conjunction with one another? Well, Ezekiel's answer is that they're all controlled by the same spirit. Now, I don't believe Ezekiel could see the Holy Spirit, just like we can't see him today. Instead, think of the word coordination. When Ezekiel witnesses the incredible coordination between these living creatures, he clearly perceives that the Spirit is guiding them. Now, I've been referring to these as living creatures, as the chapter does, but they actually have a more formal name that Ezekiel learns later. These creatures are cherubim. The singular is cherub, but when you have multiple, they are cherubim. And perhaps you've seen a picture of a cherub depicted before, usually uh, in, in a classical art, depicted as a naked baby with wings. Now, that's not a biblical idea, to be honest, and I'm not sure where that came from, and I don't think I even want to know. But it would not be accurate to refer to them as angels. The Hebrew word for an angel is malak. Malaks tend to be in kind of a, a messenger role. Cherubim are guardians. They are guardians of the presence of God. They don't look like naked babies. They look like what Ezekiel has been describing here. Uh, in the book Angels by Michael Heiser, he's a scholar who really delves into uh, a lot of ancient ideas about the supernatural. M many of those ideas are present in the Bible. And he's describing cherubim. He says the cherubim and seraphim would be viewed as a blessing or protection by those welcome in the sacred space they guarded, but as a terror to those unwelcome. So the cherubim guard a sacred space. And as we're going to see, these are guarding the presence of God. They're around God's throne. So as Michael Heiser says it, they'd be welcome in the sacred space they guarded, but to those who are unwelcome, they would be a terror. Now, why are they being guardians of God's presence? Because <laughs> like, like you probably, I don't think that God needs a bodyguard. And by the way, I know it might sound silly for God to have guards, but frankly, God can do what he wants. I mean, if God wants guards, he can have them. But I don't think the cherubim are actually protecting God. I think the cherubim are protecting us. You see, sinful man cannot stand in God's presence. We would be like an insect landing on a bug zapper. A holy God is just too pure for sinful humans to coexist with. And that's why when Adam and Eve sinned, they were cast from the Garden of Eden. Not to protect God, it was to protect them, because they could no longer coexist with God and survive. And so what did God put at the entrance of the Garden of Eden to keep Adam and Eve out? He put a cherub. So the cherubim are guardians of the presence of God. I don't think to guard God, I think that they are guarding us. That if we got too close, we would not be able to stand in God's presence. We're sinful humans and God is holy. Cherubim are not messenger angels in the way that we usually think of angels. And by the way, before we move on to the next set of verses, I just want to point something out that I've always found interesting about the faces of the cherubim. Because I've always wondered, you know, if God is going to have these, these creatures with various animal faces that are guarding his throne, why is it these four? And the answer is, each one of the faces represents a different aspect of the character of Jesus. In fact, it, it seems that each of their faces actually corresponds to one of the four Gospels in the New Testament. And when I say that, 
uh, the four Gospels, e- each of them, in their own unique way, they emphasize a different attribute of Jesus Christ. So let me explain that for a minute, and then I'll explain how it relates to the four faces of the cherubim. So in the book of Matthew, Matthew emphasizes Jesus' kingship, that Jesus is the heir to, to David's throne. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. So Matthew has a clear connection to the lion face of the cherub. It, it opens, uh, if you read the book of Matthew, it opens right up with the genealogy of Jesus' royal line because it's showing Jesus as king. When you go to the book of Mark, Mark showcases Jesus as the servant. The book of Mark has the least amount of words, but the most amount of actions that Jesus did out of any of the four Gospels. It has no genealogy because servants don't get genealogies. Mark's emphasis is to show Jesus as a servant. And thus, Mark corresponds to the ox, the service animals, that face of the cherubim. Let's talk about the book of Luke. Luke is about Jesus, the man. It opens with a genealogy, kind of like Matthew, but that genealogy goes all the way back to Adam, even further back than Matthew's. Matthew's was just talking about the royal line of Jesus. But in the book of Luke, he has a genealogy going all the way back to Adam himself because Luke wants to demonstrate Jesus, the man. So clearly, Luke's gospel corresponds to the man face of the cherubim. And then finally, uh, the book of John, that emphasizes Jesus as the divine son of God. John opens with uh, kind of a unique genealogy of Jesus' supernatural character. If you remember, John opens saying, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and so on. John opens by claiming that Jesus is one of the figures of the eternal trinity. And, And this corresponds to the eagle face of the cherub, And don't ask me why an eagle, I've always found that one a little bit the shakiest of the four, but I guess the idea is that the eagle corresponds to the spirit, which kind of makes sense. Um, Plus the other three sync up so well, the eagle is is kind of all that's left. But that is how the four faces of the cherubim correspond to the four gospels in the New Testament. And I find that amazing because the gospels didn't come around until hundreds of years after Ezekiel saw these cherubim. So I find that pretty cool. I just love how, how Ezekiel sees the unity of the four cherubim, and he perceives a supernatural Holy Spirit guiding their movement, just like the Bible itself, which was written across hundreds of years by dozens of different authors. The Bible has an incredible unity that only could have been implemented by a supernatural Holy Spirit. And one last note on this part. So it, it does appear that John in the New Testament saw these creatures or something very similar in Revelation 4 and 5. But there's actually a few important differences. And and I definitely absolutely want to touch on that, but I'm going to save that for whenever we get to Ezekiel 10. That's the next time Ezekiel meets the cherubim. And I I think it'll make more sense to get into some of those issues later. So I'm not skipping over that. I'm just saving it for a future lesson. Uh, Okay. Let's get back into the verses today. Um, We're going to pick up at verse 15 and read through verse 21. Ezekiel writes, Now as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a will on the earth beside the living creatures, one for each of the four of them. As for the appearance of the wills and their construction, their appearance was like the gleaming of beryl. 
and the four had the same likeness, their appearance and construction being, as it were, a wheel within a wheel. When they went, they went in any of their four directions without turning as they went, and their rims were tall and awesome, and the rims of all four were full of eyes all around. And when the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. And when the living creatures rose from the earth, the wheels rose. Wherever the spirit wanted to go, they went, and the wheels rose along with them. For the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When those went, these went, and when those stood, these stood. And when those rose from the earth, the wheels rose along with them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Now, around this time in the chapter, this is where it starts getting a lot harder to visualize. The creatures don't move out of their formation. Their legs even stay straight. So how do they move? Well, Ezekiel describes wheels to talk about how they move, but not just wheels. He calls them wheels within wheels. Now, how does that work? Wheels within wheels. I think we don't really have a concept for it in our language, or perhaps Ezekiel would have just used that word. This is obviously something that's far above his understanding, something that we don't even have words for. So um, before I go on, I just want to point out something a little bit unique about this chapter of Ezekiel compared to the rest of the book. Ezekiel's grammar and word choice, if you were to read it in the original Hebrew, it's not very refined compared to the rest of the book. And, and I can't speak or read Hebrew. So I'm just telling you what the commentaries told me, the people who are a bit smarter than I am, who can understand that stuff a little better. This is what they notice. That in this chapter, based on his grammar and word choice, Ezekiel is speaking in an overwhelmed manner because he's basically, he's just dictating, basically just scribbling down what he saw as fast as he can. It, it is said that he's very emotional in his word choice. He, he doesn't quite know what's going on. He's just telling you, what he saw. And so what what did he see? What is it about these wheels within wheels? Well, some have posited that he saw something like gyroscopes below the feet of these living creatures, moving them around. Gyroscopes are really complicated wheels that can move in multiple directions. If you're not familiar with what a gyroscope is, just go Google it to look at pictures. And perhaps maybe that is what he saw. You know, I was thinking about that, that cute little robot named BB-8 in some of the new Star Wars movies. If you don't know about BB-8, if I could just describe him, he's, he's this round little robot, and he rolls around like a ball. He looks kind of like a soccer ball. But, but the thing about him is he has this short head on top. And here's the weird thing when I'm, <laughs> that I'm just always kind of transfixed by, no matter how many, how many times I see those movies. No matter where he moves around, no matter how fast he moves, his head always stays on top of his body. I don't understand how that works. And and it's not just that it's a, you know, a science fiction movie type of thing. The really interesting thing about BB-8 is they actually built a BB-8 robot that rolls around with the actors with his head staying on top of his body. So this is not some CGI effect. They actually built a robot that does this. And I don't know how they keep his head on. I mean, I don't know if it has something to do with with magnets or what. There's a there's a website. It's called howbb8works.com. That website, if you go to it, it has diagrams and they have theories as to how they created that thing. And all I'm saying about all that <laughs> is that I don't know. It's above my understanding. Just like these wills within wills are beyond Ezekiel's understanding. Um, if you find that hard to fathom, I'd say you're in good company because I think that's how Ezekiel felt. 
he doesn't quite understand what he's seeing. It doesn't make sense to him in a natural way. And, and he doesn't have the words to really even communicate exactly what it, what it was he was looking at. How the, the four living creatures were moving around on those wheels within wheels. And I want to touch on something else before we go on. Uh, he mentioned the, the eyes. This is one of the weirdest and most distinct features of his vision is all the eyes that he said he saw. I mean, that almost makes it hard to imagine. Maybe I should probably read that verse again. Talking about the wheels within wheels, it said their rims were tall and awesome, and the rims of all four were full of eyes all around. Well, as weird as everything else in the vision is, I mean, the creatures with four heads, the wings, the wheels within wheels, the, the eyes, that just takes it to an even deeper level of weird that it said the rims of the wheels were covered with eyes. So just to talk about this for a minute, um, the word in Hebrew for eyes is ayin. I'm probably not saying that right. One commentary that I was reading said that this word is usually translated eyes, but not always. It can, it can actually just mean bright and sparkly. So I looked up the word ayin, and it's used 830 times in the Old Testament. It's translated as eyes almost 500 of those times. So generally speaking, yes, it's, it's eyes. But there's also times where it just means bright and sparkly, not not literal eyes. I kind of think that makes more sense when we're talking about the cherubim and the wheels here. Uh, if you look at this chapter of Ezekiel alone, the word ayin is used six times in that chapter. And all the other times that that word is used, it's just referring to something that's bright and gleaming. So I, I don't know if the rims of the wheels within wheels were literally covered in eyes. It's possible. But I also think it's possible this is just referring to them being bright and gleaming. That that makes a little more sense to me. <laughs> but again, we're talking about the supernatural. So by, by default, um, what you would naturally assume is not always going to be correct. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure. But I think there's a good chance it's actually just he was saying that they were bright and gleaming on the rims. I think that's what Ezekiel's trying to say about the wheels. But um, everything in this chapter is like bright and shiny. This will come up again in chapter 10, so we might revisit it at that time. But I do want to say this. It does seem that the creatures themselves, that they had many eyes on their wings. And so maybe that's why the translators think that the wills had eyes too. So like I said, we'll dig into that more in a later chapter. Uh, and that was that was the big section of this chapter. <laughs> we can take a deep breath right here. We made it through the first section, which I think is the big section of this chapter. Like I said, I divide this chapter into three parts. Um, first was the cherubim and their wheels. And then after that, the next part I want to talk about is the expanse. And I'll explain what the expanse is. And then the final part, we'll talk about God. So let's talk about what the expanse is now. This is in verses 22. We'll read through verses uh, 20 through, 22 through 25. Over the heads of the living creatures, there was the likeness of an expanse, shining like an awe-inspiring crystal spread out above their heads. And under the expanse, their wings were stretched out straight, one toward another, and each creature had two wings covering its body. And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads. When they stood still, they let down their wings. So two aspects of this section uh, that he mentions, there was the sound, and then something else that, that he called the expanse. Now, as far as this sound goes, I, I find it pretty self-explanatory. 
It said their wings were loud like a waterfall. Now, I don't I don't know what to do with that information other than point out that it's not that's not generally how wings work. Like you don't normally hear a bird's wings. I mean, I guess occasionally you hear them flapping, but I mean, like when a bird flies over your head, you generally don't hear it. Um, however, the cherubim wings, like in contrast to that, the cherubim wings are extremely loud. So, I mean, maybe they flap their wings really fast, kind of like a hummingbird, but but they're so big, they sound more like a helicopter. I don't know. But the other thing I want to focus on from these verses is the expanse or the firmament, as some translations call it. I see the firmament as the separation between our world and the spiritual world. Okay? So to explain that, I think if you opened a portal to heaven, like right to where God's throne is, you would first notice what is called the expanse or the firmament. And this is that barrier that's right between heaven and us. Now, why do I think that? Well, I'm going to pull together a few different things from Scripture to explain this. Um, This is where the title of our show comes into play, cross-references. So let's go back to Exodus for a minute. This is when Moses sees a vision of God, very much like Ezekiel is right here, actually. Uh, Moses takes some elders up on Mount Sinai, and, and this is what they see. It's in Exodus 24, just reading verses 9 and 10. It says, Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was, under his feet as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. So they see God on his throne, and under his feet there was the sapphire. Other translations will say lapis lazuli. And, and sapphire or lapis lazuli, that is a blue crystal. The, the beautiful thing about these stones is that um, you can Google them if you want to see what they look like. And the beautiful thing about these stones is that they're like looking up at the sky. So I believe that's what Exodus and what Ezekiel is trying to communicate, is that when they look at God on his throne, it appears that he's sitting on the sky. Okay? Now, we're going to go back to Ezekiel for a minute, and I'm just going to read verse 26, and and bring what I was saying before, bring that into it here. Okay, so in verse 26, Ezekiel writes, And above the expanse over their heads, there was, like the likeness of a throne, and an appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. So what Ezekiel sees is totally congruent with what Moses and the elders saw. It, it appears that God is sitting on the sky. He's, he's the figure, the likeness with a human appearance on the throne. It appears that he's sitting on the sky. That's God. Remember that although Ezekiel is, he's elevated up on a tell, okay, and for Moses and the elders, they're elevated up on this mountain. But yet even there, from their vantage point, they are, they are still on earth. They are from below. And they're looking up at God. And to all of them, they see God on this throne. And it looks like the ground that he's standing on or sitting on. It looks like the appearance of sapphire, like this blue sky-like stone. Okay, let's look at um, another place where we get a glimpse of God on his throne. This is in the book of Revelation. This is when John sees God. But um, the thing that's a little bit different here, John sees God from within heaven itself. So things are a little bit different from these earlier, the same in a lot of ways, but also slightly different. And, And here's where it's different. In Revelation chapter four, verse six, John wrote, 
And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. So he sees something a little bit different there as far as like the platform that God is on. Remember that in the examples before with Moses and Ezekiel, they are down on the earth and they're looking up at God and it looks like God is enthroned upon a blue sky. John in the New Testament is gazing upon God's throne from up in heaven. So he has a different vantage point. He's looking down. And when John is in heaven in the throne room looking down, it looks more like God's throne is upon something clear like glass or crystal. So here's how I envision it. Here's how I put all this together. When God is in heaven looking down, he sees clearly into our world and our reality. It's like a clear crystal to him. It's like glass or like looking through a window. But when we're below looking up at God, it looks like the sky underneath his throne. So it's kind of like a two-way mirror where instead of one side being a mirror, it's like one side is clear and one side is blue crystal that looks like sky. And by the way, I'm not saying that sky is is literally a blue crystal. I'm just saying um, that when it comes to God, he could have made his throne and his platform any color he wanted to. But he chose these colors because he's trying to communicate something to us about his position and perspective. See, God is above all that is in this world. So from where he sits on his throne, he can see all things because it's like he's sitting in the clouds, enthroned on the sky itself. But when he looks down, it's as through glass. When we look up, he's obscured behind the sky. But when he looks down, he can see all things clearly. So just to recap what we've been talking about, between Ezekiel and God, there's a couple of layers. And and the first layer, it was these throne guardians, the cherubim, who were the first barrier between man and God. And then the second layer is this expanse, this firmament. It's this cosmic barrier between our reality and the spiritual reality. Now, we just have two verses left I want to talk about today. And these two verses are describing uh, when Ezekiel saw God. Verses 27 and 28. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him, like the appearance of a bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. And that's it. A mere two verses to describe the appearance of God and close out the chapter. Now, that's pretty small compared to everything else Ezekiel talked about. Why does Ezekiel spend the least amount of time describing God compared with how much he spent on the cherubim and on their wills, and on the expanse? And I think the answer is kind of simple. Ezekiel could see the cherubim a lot more clearly than he could see God. I think that's all there is to it. He doesn't give a long description of God, and it's not very detailed at all. It's, it's like, a, he, this is what he says when he, when he looked at God in verses 27 and 28. He saw a man-like being on a throne, and the top half of his body is bright and shiny, and the bottom half of his body is bright and shiny. And there are bright and shiny rainbow colors all around, and it's hard for him to say much more than that. Now, I'm I'm sitting here myself trying to think of a brilliant and thought-provoking metaphor for what it must have looked like to look at God directly, but I can come up with nothing. It's hard to describe something like that. It's like I was a thesaurus with blank pages. 
here's what I was thinking. Um, recently, I was thinking about this chapter while I was driving our church van. Um, and I was at like a stoplight. Have you ever been motoring around during the early morning or perhaps at sunset and the sun is just right at the same level as a stoplight? And whenever there, when that happens, it's really hard to see when the light turns green because sometimes the sun is just lined up so so imperfectly with the sun. Okay, if you've ever had that experience, it can be really hard to look and, and even perceive the color of the stoplight with all that brightness around it. Well, I was thinking of looking at the glory of God as kind of like looking into the sun. Okay, I, I want to say that again because I think it explains Ezekiel's experience. I think of looking at the glory of God like looking into the sun. It was so bright that Ezekiel could only barely get a look at God. Unlike the cherubim, who he was able to describe in a lot more detail, Ezekiel could only provide a vague description of God on the throne. You know, think about this. The sun is 93 million miles away, and it could still burn you even here. I mean, if you're out in the sun too long, you can get sunburned. If you look directly at the sun for too long, it'll damage your eyes. <laughs> you don't even want to try it because it's so bright, even at 93 million miles away, that it's overwhelming to even gaze upon. Now, just imagine for a minute that you're looking at the one who created the sun. If you can't even look at the sun directly, how can we think we can look at the sun's creator for very long? So I'm impressed that Ezekiel was even able to say as much as he did. He could barely even see God when he was looking directly at him. And why is the glory of God too great for us to look at? Well, <laughs> I can't explain it because um, God's unexplainable. He's a mystery. But that's why we worship God. He's mysterious to us. If we could wrap our minds around him, he wouldn't be worth worshiping. Now, we'll close down in a few minutes with a quick recap and some personal application of this chapter. Uh, first, let me just ask, do you like fake news? Well, if so, you definitely do not want to check out my other podcast. It's called Fake News, a fiery but mostly peaceful podcast. And on that weekly show, we look at the past week of news stories through kind of a meta-narrative of how the media covered those stories. And it's a lot of fun. It's more focused on current events. So um, if you don't like fake news, then you definitely don't want to come listen to it. But if you like laughing at fake news, well, come join the fun. We have new episodes of that one each Friday. And uh, again, if you have a if you, if you have a question on this chapter that we've been studying today, uh, leave a comment or shoot us an email. Our email is crossreferencespodcast at gmail.com. And I'd be happy to take questions or recommendations on subjects that you think I should tackle in the future. Uh, the next time on this podcast, I want to get into an interesting question that many Christians have about judging. Christians often know they should avoid becoming a judgmental person. And Jesus told us, judge not. Yet he also told us to judge with righteous judgment. So how do we balance all these instructions? Well, we'll untangle all that in episode six. And then for episode seven, we'll start Ezekiel chapter two. It's a very short chapter, so we'll probably cover the whole thing on that episode. But just to recap from today, we talked about chapter one, verses four through 28. And I divide that section into three parts, the cherubim, the firmament, 
and then God. All three parts are descriptions by Ezekiel of what he saw when God pulled back the curtain of reality and gave Ezekiel a glimpse into heaven. For the first part, with the cherubim, Ezekiel noticed that they were four-faced, humanoid creatures. Not angels, technically, but these were four guardians of God's presence that supposedly go wherever his throne goes. The four faces correlate to the four Gospels in the New Testament, and the four cherubim, or living creatures, as this chapter calls them, they all moved in perfect coordination, and they could see in all four directions. Ezekiel perceived that they were all being controlled by the same spirit in perfect conjunction. Between the cherubim and God was this barrier called the expanse, or the firmament. It's the cosmic barrier between earth and heaven. And we talked about a few other places in scripture that this barrier shows up. And then last, we talked about when Ezekiel saw God himself. And Ezekiel described God to the best of his ability. However, it's very hard to look directly into the glory of God. Ezekiel did what he could. And in the chapters to come, uh, we're going to see that God is going to commission Ezekiel as his prophet. I just want to remind you of the state of affairs for Ezekiel. Just imagine for a minute that you are Ezekiel. You are among a people that have been carted off to another country. 10,000 Jewish captives. And there are still some Jews left in Israel, but Babylon is in the process of wiping them out. And you aren't sure if the Jews that are still free down in Jerusalem, if they're the lucky ones for not having been kidnapped, or if you're one of the lucky ones because at least you were taken alive. And you've turned 30. And if you hadn't been kidnapped, you'd be starting your career as a priest this year in the temple. Instead, you're hundreds of miles from your home and your temple and your calling that you had been training for. And you and the people you're with have no hope. That's the state of affairs for Ezekiel. And then God breaks into his story. Many of the biblical prophets' ministries begin with seeing God in some fashion. And we should seek to see God, all of us. Maybe not in a vision necessarily, but just to try to know God as best and as clearly as we can. Because the more we seek to know God intimately, the more we will reflect God to the rest of the world. So Ezekiel begins writing this down. It's said in some commentaries that Ezekiel changed the course of his nation because finally the people had hope again. They had something to look forward to. And it's all because Ezekiel had this personal experience seeing God. Uh, it, it reminded me of this, um, this guy, John Wesley. He was a well-known revivalist in the 1700s. And when he was asked, how do you attract so many people to come hear you speak, to come hear you preach? What's different about your message as opposed to, to other preachers? John Wesley said, I set myself on fire and people come to watch me burn. It reminds me also of Moses, who was reflecting the glory of God after he'd spent time with him on the mountain. You can read about that in Exodus 24, verses 29 through 35. But 2 Corinthians 3.18 mentions this, and, and this is what it says about us, comparing us to, to Moses when he'd come down off the mountain, reflecting the glory of God. 2 Corinthians said, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Whenever we know God in a better way, and we reflect God to the rest of the, the people around us, they can see it. 
And and that's a that's a good thing. That's what John Wesley said. Why he said he sets himself on fire and people come to watch him burn. I mean, we often say Christianity is not a religion, that it's a relationship, right? We say that a lot. And and that means basically that there's nothing more important in your Christian walk than spending time with God each day to see him better, to reflect him better. Uh, there is a, a wise preacher who once said to me that when people come to my church on Sunday morning, they don't really care how many hours you've studied in your office over the message. They don't care how much time you spent pouring over the Bible. They care whether you've been with Jesus this week. Because if you've been with Jesus, they trust that you can connect them to him. I'm going to stop there for today uh, with just this thought about the importance that we all spend time with God so that we can better show him to the world around us. Thanks for listening to the Cross References Podcast. This has been Luke Taylor reminding you, be with Jesus. Get in your prayer closet. Close the door. Pull out your Bible. Shut off your phone. Experience the glory of God. Come out brighter than how you went in. For Ezekiel, it changed the course of his life. Some say it changed the course of his nation. I think for you, it could at least change your day. Thank you.